Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Church. It's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you for our third installment of our series, Here It Comes. We are preparing for the opening of public life in our world, and uh, just as a surfer prepares for a wave that is coming, we need to prepare for the wave that's coming to our lives, and we're preparing by looking at three of the key values of the Christian life, the three values that Paul names in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. And you remember we looked at faith. Faith was that virtue that gives us a history. It gives us a a backstory. It tells us who we are. It shapes our identity. It says, this is where you come from. This is what you're made for. You have faith in the things that God has done in your past, and you know who that God is. And then we have hope that looks into the future. And hope says, I know where I'm going. I know that ultimately things are in God's hands. I don't need to live a life of anger or anxiety because I know the God who goes before me. And today we come to the the greatest of the virtues, the virtue of love. And for this, I want to look at Corinthians, and specifically at 1 Corinthians 13. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it or turn it on, look at 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, And I want to set up the context of what was going on in the city of Corinth. Uh, But before we get to that, let's pray together. Father, I thank you for guiding our studies of your word. I thank you for opening our hearts and our minds for what you want to say to us I pray that uh, through what I say today, through the meditations of our hearts, that you will be honored and that you'll speak to us. Help us to hear your voice, to know how much you love us, and to know the love that you've called us to. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, let me set up the context of Corinth. Corinth was a fascinating city in Greece in the ancient world. It was a port city, and so all the sailors would come into the ports and bring all their, their wealth and their goods to exchange, the, uh, the goods that they would sell in the, in the agora, in the marketplace in Corinth. And as a consequence, Corinth grew really rich. Uh, Corinth grew uh, filthy rich on the, the trade that came through the city. It was a lot like, a, uh, like San Francisco in the sense that it was a port town uh, where all the, the, the money came through. Um, however, uh, if, uh, if you had to... Um, Uh, compare Corinth to any city today, it's really more like a Las Vegas. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth, or or not so much. And the the expression uh, in the first century world, in the world of Jesus, the expression a Corinthian girl was a synonym for a prostitute. If someone was called a Corinthian girl, they were being referred to as a prostitute. So it was into this city that the Apostle Paul went and did ministry. And he did what he always did. He used his time to share the story of Jesus with people. And then he got a job as a tent maker, making uh, tents for all the soldiers who had come in off the ships, and set up a shop in the Agora Marketplace. And the Agora was about, uh, it was about 175 yards long, 
and it had all kinds of little shops. It'd be like uh, the night markets you see all through um, uh, Southeast Asia today, where it's just shop after shop after shop and shop owners selling whatever goods they're producing. And Paul would sit there uh, all day long so that he could interact with people and talk to them and form relationships with them so that he could talk to them about Jesus. And that's what he would do in the Agora in Corinth every day. There was also in the Agora little houses of worship. So you could, uh, you could uh, shop, and then you could stop and offer prayers to your god or goddess uh, and make donations to them. And that may seem strange to you, but uh, a few years ago I was walking through a mall in Honolulu, Hawaii, and one of the stores had been rented out by a, uh, by a, a religious organization, and I'm not even sure what religion it was, but there were statues to all these different gods, and you would go and you would put money in the boxes at the feet of all these gods, depending on what you were asking for, in a shopping mall. And that's exactly like what was going on in Corinth. It was like the shopping mall with little houses of worship along the way. Um, it's actually probably what we're going to see in malls in America before too long, as, as malls start to close and lose their anchor stores, uh, I think churches are going to migrate back into shopping malls, and you're going to see mall, church, mall, church, mall, church, uh, is my expectation. So, uh, so this is Corinth. It was also religiously experimental. There was a temple to Apollos, who was the sun god, uh, there in Corinth. And there was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And the uh, tradition here, the story was that there were a thousand temple prostitutes in the, in the temple of uh, Aphrodite, where as part of the religious rituals, um, uh, sexual exchanges were made. And that was part of the experimental uh, nature of Corinth. And it was such a strange city, such a Las Vegas kind of city that there was a historian named Strabo who described Corinth. And you'll love this description. Uh, you, this, this just rings true. Strabo wrote, The temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was so rich that it owned more than a thousand temple slaves, prostitutes, whom both men and women had dedicated to the goddess. And therefore, it was also on account of these women that the city was crowded with people and grew rich. For instance... The ship captains freely squandered their money. And hence the proverb, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Uh, I love that line. Uh, Corinth isn't for everybody, was the proverb. Sounds like Las Vegas. Las Vegas isn't for everybody. Uh, Corinth isn't for everybody. And that was the reputation it had. So it was a city of broken love. It was a city of confused love. Uh, there were all kinds of people there seeking happiness and satisfaction and even love and finding substitutes that weren't as good. Uh, and that's in the nature of Corinth. And Paul goes to that city to do ministry. Isn't that interesting, Christians? Paul doesn't run away from the heart of brokenness. He runs into it. Jesus would not run away from the heart of brokenness. He would run into it. So many Christians today want to run away from it and create little religious huddles where they can hide out. That's not the heart of Jesus. Jesus moves into the deepest brokenness of humanity to love people who are broken. And so Paul moves into Corinth and begins to do ministry there. Now, <coughs> Corinth um, is, is uh, making a couple of mistakes. One, they're looking at the outside instead of the inside. Uh, and that's in the nature of Corinth. They're, uh, they're a rich city. They're a fabulously wealthy city. And part of their wealth uh, came uh, in their production of these, these famous mirrors that were being made in Corinth. Paul actually refers to them in Corinthians. Uh, he talks about looking in a mirror. And that's because the Corinthians were making mirrors because they were rich and vain, and they liked to look at themselves. They liked to beautify themselves. They, they put a heavy emphasis on the outside, 
on how they looked, on how they dressed, and how they appeared. Uh, they're, they're mistaking the nature of love by thinking that it's the outside that matters. Uh, it's kind of like what happened when a woman went to a, a well-to-do church where the dress code was very important, and all the men shopped at Nordstrom, and all the women shopped at Neiman Marcus, and the accessories alone required a second mortgage. And uh, th there was this very nice dressy church, and one day uh, a woman came in wearing kind of shabby clothes. Uh, she was not dressed well. Uh, she, looked, she looked kind of uh, like she didn't own much, and she went and she sat in church, and she sort of stuck out like a sore thumb. And so the pastor, thinking he was being uh, helpful, went up to her at one point and sort of whispered to her and said, you know, um, we're, we're, we like to dress up and give God our best here, so, you know, if you come back next week, you might want to put on something a little bit nicer. That's just what we do in church. The next week she came back, and she was wearing exactly the same thing. And he looked at her kind of quizzically, and he went up to her again, and he said, you know, I, I told you last week you might want to wear something nicer to church. Why don't, you, why don't you this week, why don't you pray about it? And you ask God what he wants you to wear to this church next week. Because we dress a little bit nicer here. So you ask God, you pray and ask God what you're supposed to wear here. She came back the next week and was wearing exactly the same thing. Because that's all she had. The life had been hard on her and she didn't have much. She knew she needed God in her life and she was desperate. And she went back to the same rude church again pastor saw it again, and he went up to her and he said, hey, I, I told you to wear something nicer to church. I told you to pray about it. Didn't you pray about it? Didn't you ask God what you were supposed to wear to church? And she said, I did. I prayed to God. I asked God what I was supposed to wear to church, and God told me he doesn't know what to wear to this church because he's never been here before. <laughs> uh, that was good. Um, do you know where that one was going? Um, that's what the Corinthians are doing. The Corinthians are looking at the outside of people. They're focusing on the outsides, and they're objectifying people. They're turning people into objects to be evaluated and used. That's what's going on in the, in the temple of Aphrodite. People are objects. And, and, and what, they, what they do is they confuse a subject and an object. You are a subject, not an object. You are a you, not an it. You are not to be objectified. You're not to be valued based on the outside. The scriptures say that God looks at the heart. God looks at who we are on the inside. Um, back, back in this uh, era, in the... A few years before Jesus was born, there was a Roman poet named Ovid. And Ovid wrote a play called Pygmalion. And Pygmalion was the name of the main character. And Pygmalion uh, gets sick of the prostitutes in Greece, the, like the, the Corinthian girls. He gets sick of the prostitutes in Greece. And he carves a statue of a perfect woman, exactly the kind of woman he would love. And he prays to the goddess Aphrodite, whose temple was here in Corinth. And he, he asks her, he says, will you make her alive? And Aphrodite does. Uh, and so he has this perfect woman that he's carved, and then Aphrodite is brought to life. But you see through the course of the story, he never gives her a name. He never identifies her. And that's what the objectification of people does. It pursues an exterior perfection at the cost of identity. You're not an it, you're a you. You're not an object, you're a subject. Don't let yourself be objectified. The Corinthians were busy in the business of objectifying one another. And you and I, in many ways today, live in a modern-day Corinth. Taking your clothes off on TikTok is not going to make you feel better about yourself. 
It's going to objectify you. It will not make you a more attractive person. It will make you more of an object. And people looking to make you an object will objectify you. And when that whole process is done, you will not feel better about yourself. You will not feel valued or cherished. You will feel used. And you will feel emptier than when you began. That is the product of a Corinthian life. One of the worst deceits of modern morality is to say that as long as two people consent to it, it's okay. When two people consent to something sick, it doesn't make it healthy. When two people consent to something stupid, it doesn't make it smart. Morality is more than consent. So don't ever consent to being objectified. Don't consent to a culture of objectification. You are not an object, you are a subject. You are not an it, you are a you. Um, a, a study actually uh, came out just uh, in 2016 on social media use, and this is increasingly being shown to be the case, and you probably already suspect this. They studied a, a group of people who used a lot of social media and a group of people who didn't use any social media at all, and among those who used social media regularly, rates of depression were 166% higher. Because what social media is forcing us to do is to stare at the outside of one another's and, and evaluate. Am I as good as that person? Am I as happy as, as that person? Do I, do I look as good? Am I eating as well? Do I, do I have all the things that that person has? It, it reminds me of the, the old superstition that certain cultures had that if you took a picture of them, the camera would capture their soul. And in the Western world, we scoffed at that and said, oh, that's just a silly superstition. That's not what cameras do. But you know what? I'm not sure we were right. Because in the I generation, the selfie is absolutely seal, stealing our souls. That need to photograph ourselves and show ourselves in a good light on the outside is robbing us of our souls on the inside. And that was the nature of Corinth. Corinth was mistaking the value of the inside for the value of the outside. Secondly, at a deeper level, Corinth was mistaking giftedness for grace. The Corinthians are fighting over who's the most gifted, over who's the most talented, over who has the best spiritual gifts. They're fighting over, am I better because I can pray and heal people, or are you better because you can speak in tongues, or is that person better because they can prophesy? Who's got the best spiritual gift? Who's closest to God and the most powerful and the most important? And they get in all kinds of fights in Corinth over who's the most gifted. This happens in churches today as well. Churches get in fights over whose gift is the best and who's got the most important ministry and who's most valuable. And it just... It just eats the church up inside when people do that. Following Jesus isn't about proving your talents. It's about accepting his grace. It's not about proving your giftedness. It's about accepting his grace. And Jesus absolutely cherishes you. Not because of what you can do. Not because of what you can look like. But because he made you. Because you belong to him. Jesus absolutely cherishes you. And Paul will now speak into the brokenness of Corinth, the broken conceptions of love at Corinth. And this is what he'll say. I will show you the most excellent way. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus says the same thing. Jesus says when he's asked, what's the most important commandments? What's the law all about? What does God really want? He says, love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That is the purpose of your life. That is what life is for. If you are a follower of Jesus, your life should be defined by this. Love God with everything you've got. And then love your neighbor the way you'd want to be loved. First John says, that those who love know God, and those who don't love don't know God. You and I were made to love. That's our purpose. That's what we're for. Life is the process of learning to love. I mean, think about school. School is the process of getting an education, where you learn certain things about how the world works, you learn how to do certain things, you learn some practical skills, you acquire some knowledge, and that sends you on to more school and ultimately to a career where you can expand and express yourself and take care of yourself. Right? School has a purpose. The purpose of the school of life is to learn to love. That is what we are here for. If you get to the end of your life and you haven't learned to love, you've missed the purpose. The purpose of life is to learn to love God with everything you've got and to love other people the way you'd want to be loved. That is absolutely and only what life is for. Jesus says it, and Paul says it. He speaks it into the broken city of Corinth, this city looking for love. Now, you and I are about to face a season in our uh, cities, in our communities, in our world, where things are going to open up again. Things are returning to public life. Even uh, this week, there's news of partial uh, opening of restaurants, gyms, and other things like that. Soon, public life will return. And as it does, people will be looking at Christians to say, now, who are you? And you and I will either be defined by the heart of the values of Jesus, or we will not. If we are, the world will see something like no one else has to offer. It's like when a, when a restaurant has a grand opening, and all these people flood in to check it out for the first time. If the food is bad, or the servers are rude, 
those people never come back again. That was the opportunity. That was the window. That was the, the one open door that they had. When the world opens up again, when the church opens its doors and people go looking, we have one opportunity as they come through to say, this is what God's love looks like. This is what the purpose of life is for. I may not have it down perfectly, but I'm learning it. I am spending my life learning how to love God with everything I got and love other people the way I'd like to be loved. And, and you may ask, so what does that look like? How do I how do, I do that on a day-to-day -day basis? It's not going to come from some big tectonic event that gets captured on the evening news. It's not going to be that moment where you, you rush out in the street and save somebody from an oncoming bus and then you're seen to be such a, a great and loving, heroic person. It's going to come from the little moments where we put other people in front of ourselves. Uh, I, I knew somebody who uh, was uh, shopping one day and they were in a, they were in a, a nice uh, high-end department store and uh, uh, you know, the, the clothes there were, every single thing in the store was, was uh, outrageous. And uh, my friend said um, she saw a, uh, a homeless woman come in, um, dressed very poorly, and uh, saw her kind of walking through the aisles and looking at the clothes and knew this woman couldn't afford uh, anything on the, the racks and expected, you know, that security would immediately come and escort her out. But she said she was stunned when she watched one of the, uh, the clerks working at the store go up to the woman and say, can I help you? And the woman said, I'm looking for a dress, a party dress. And the employee said, we have some very nice ones. Let me show you around. And my friend who saw this was stunned and actually stopped and watched as the employee went and got several different dresses off the racks and held them up and showed them to the woman and tried to match them to her eyes and make sure that they had the right size and style. And then, then she allowed the woman back into the dressing rooms. The woman spent a few minutes trying on some of the various dresses. And my friend hung out to watch because now she was mesmerized. When all this was done, when the woman had tried everything on, she said to the employee, she said, well, I, I don't have any money right now, but um, I'll probably come back and get one. And the employee said, okay, well, here's my card, so you, you keep this, and if you come back, just let me know. I'll help you uh, anytime you need. The way you and I are, are called to love is not going to be in big tectonic events that everybody sees. It's going to be in little moments where we let somebody else go through the door in front of us, where we help somebody else find a seat before we find our own seat, where we See it as our role to be the hosts and the, the clerks attending to other people, just checking us out for the first time. When the world returns to public life, the goal that you and I have is not to do something impressive that would look good uh, in a spotlight, but instead to live lives guided by a deep and persistent love, the love that Jesus has for all of us and the, the love that Jesus wants us to have for everyone else. It's coming. Here it comes. We'll either be ready for it or we won't. And when people come through our doors, they'll either find the love that they're looking for or they'll find some substitute. We'll, we will either live as citizens of Corinth or citizens of the kingdom of heaven. 
Churches all over the world are now getting ready for this opening. Churches are moving back in, turning on the lights, heating up the fog machines, and making sure the circus is running in all three rings. But as for three-ring circus churches, they will be stilled. As for fog machines, they will be silenced. In the end, only three great virtues of the Christian faith will remain. Those are faith, hope, and love. And the greatest one is love. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you again soon. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.